I still have that feeling. Oh, there I am. Uh, and just, I, I do want to thank you all for your understanding these last couple of weeks, giving me time off. Um, you know, it's been a tough time, tough week for our family last week. And, uh, but uh, encourage you to keep our family in prayer, especially Alex and, and Ezra. We do covet your prayers. We appreciate all the encouraging words and the cards. Uh, so thank you so much for that. But now I want to give you some encouraging words. Uh, if you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles. Uh, we're going to head back to the book of Acts this morning. Uh, and we have a passage before us that's found in parts of both chapter 14 and 15. And the final part of chapter 14 is sort of where we left off last time we were together. Uh, that part of the chapter, it just kind of wraps up Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. It's a lot of sort of just details, and it's kind of a summary of their return home. And we're actually going to even just read it as we jump in, beginning in Acts 14, if you want to follow along. Beginning in 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, and they came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had been called. And when they had arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So Paul and Barnabas, they're finally back home. Uh, and they took kind of a winding path to get there. That's what this verse tells us. You know, they retraced their steps kind of thing. They, they, they went on their way back to Antioch. They, they stopped again in many of the places that they had already been. And they, while they were there, they encouraged the believers. And we told they established leadership in those churches. But it's when they're sort of finally back in Antioch. You know, the place where their journey began, that something very important, I guess very interesting, kind of happens. And that's what takes us to the, the rest of our passage this morning in chapter 15. And part of, that's the part of the passage we're going to focus on most this morning. But if you want to follow along here, verse, chapter 15, verse 1, it says, But some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter, and after there had been much debate, 
Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Let's pray. Father God, um, it's good to be back. And Lord, I just pray that, Lord, you would once again be with us as we open your word to read and hear your truth, that, Lord, you would just find a way to put this truth deep in our hearts, that, Lord, this truth about grace would be something we not just know in our heads, but, Lord, something that we are living out each and every moment of our lives, something that is, defines our church as a whole. And, Lord, again, we just invite you to be with us in our time this morning. May you be our honored guest. May you be our teacher May your presence just be felt here once again, and that, Lord, you would empower me to preach um, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, I want to begin with a little bit of a time of let's pretend, all right? Because I want you to just imagine that you are maybe in a different place, or a different time, even. Uh, you can pick the location. It could be anywhere you want, maybe somewhere you wished you could always, you know, wished you always were able to live but in that place, now just imagine that you are part of a wonderful church. And I mean like just a really, really great church. You're part of the kind of church where church is not just a place you go, it's part of who you are. I mean, church infuses your life. This is the kind of church that's making a difference in the lives of the people all around it. It's, it's a joy. There's true fellowship there. This church is a place of healing and wholeness and intimacy. And you love it. I mean, you love it there. You love the worship. You love the pastors. You love the teaching. You love the people. And everybody else in your church feels pretty much the same way that you do. So one day, you know, you're all kind of sitting around doing church. You're worshiping. You're praying together. And this idea occurs to you as you kind of look around. You think to yourself, you know what? We should, we should spread this joy around. We should actually plant a new church. Let's plant a new church in a new town so that new people can experience church just like this. And there just happens to be in your church a few wonderful young leaders who are eager for just such a challenge. So you set a couple of those leaders apart and you tell them you go out there and you start a new church. And that's exactly what they do. And you know, time passes and you just, you keep hearing such good things about their ministry. You hear that those new people in that new place, they're, they're, they're being saved, they're being encouraged, they're being trained, they're being equipped for life in Christ. And your church is so excited that you are able to be a part of that. So once again, you're, you're sitting around together and you, you get this idea, you think to yourself, wouldn't it be amazing if we could have a joint worship service together with this other church, just so we could get together and together we could celebrate all that God has done 
So you begin to make plans. You begin making preparations. And finally, the day comes, the, the day that you have been waiting for, when these two churches will worship together with one voice. But that's where the trouble begins, because as these members of this other church begin to show up and they begin to worship, you realize it's nothing like what your church is used to. And you, you don't know the songs that they're singing. They're new songs to you. And you don't use that version of the Bible that they're using. That's not our official word of God. And they're doing communion different than you. That's not even our order of service that they're using. How will I know when the offertory is coming? It's crazy. And suddenly what was to be this moment of joy and celebration kind of becomes a crisis. As you look around at these people and you think, you begin to wonder how... How can both of us be a church, be the church, when we have so little in common? How will we ever learn to fellowship with people whose Christian traditions are just so weird? How will we ever be able to get along with other believers who are just so different from ourselves? And I ask that question because that's the big question that our passage this morning is going to be asking us. Because just remember where we've sort of been. In the last few months, we've been looking at Paul's first missionary journey. Where Paul and Barnabas, you know, God sets them apart and he sets them off on this mission to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And on that journey, they see great success. Gentiles were coming to faith in a big way. You know what, Acts 21, or 14, 21, in the passage I read, just even says many disciples were made. And that was just one city. And Paul and Barnabas visited dozens of cities. And the truth was unavoidable. Gentiles were becoming believers in Jesus Christ. Gentiles were responding to grace. Gentiles were being saved. And because of that, Gentiles were starting to form churches of their very own. But that's where the problem begins. Because it didn't take too long after Paul and Barnabas arrived back in Antioch and reported how God had been working through them and how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, that trouble arise. Because here's what happens next. Acts chapter 15, verse 1, says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what happens next is some of these Jewish believers in Jerusalem who hear about that God is saving the Gentiles, when they hear that good news, their first reaction is, great, but you are circumcising them, right? Like that's kind of, we need this to happen. Because in the Jewish mind, there were really, there were two kinds of people. There were the circumcised and there were the uncircumcised. And the uncircumcised didn't associate with the, with the circumcised, or the other way, both, both ways around. And it never happened. So these people, when they looked at how just different these churches were, the Gentile church and the Jewish church, decided their solution to this problem would be that we're just going to force those other people to do things our way, the Jewish way. They, they can just adopt our values. They can start singing our songs. They can, they can follow our traditions and everything will be fine. 
Your churches can just be a carbon copy of our own. And, and that's, yay. And, they did, and here's the thing. They didn't just think that was a good idea. It wasn't just sort of a preference that they were expressing. Like, this, this will really help things along. What we actually read here is that these men actually made this a matter of salvation itself. As they began saying things like we hear in verse 1, that unless you are circumcised according to the custom, you cannot be saved. You see, in their minds, they tied their traditions to salvation itself. To them, it it was a package deal. Because this group of Jewish believers, I think they just naturally assumed that they knew how to do church the right way. After all, they had the most experience. I mean, even before Jesus showed up, they had a history of, you know, worshiping God, being the people of God that dated back thousands of years. And they had all kinds of traditions and rituals and ceremonies and celebrations that they followed that were already sort of built into their faith. So when Jesus, you know, came as the Messiah, the truth is they didn't have to change very much. They could keep all of their old traditions and still follow Jesus. So that to them, it was natural to think, you know, the way that we're doing it was the way it's always been done, which means that it's the way we should always be doing things going into the future. After all, how can thousands of years of tradition be wrong? And I guess what's craziest to me is that I'm sure that when these guys showed up in Antioch, you know, telling the Gentiles they need to be circumcised, I am sure that they generally believed that they were trying to help. I think they said to themselves, you know what, time to go and show those cute little newborn baby Gentile Christians how being the people of God is to really be done. And yet I'm also sure that there were probably many of the Gentiles who heard about this and said, this is not what we signed up for. I mean, this wasn't even part of the gospel that was preached to us. It wasn't even mentioned. And many of the Gentiles were probably having real Second thoughts about being a Christian, if, if that's what it means to be a Christian. And it must have been just a terribly confusing time for the Gentiles and, and for the church as, as a whole. Which is why I think Paul and Barnabas react so strongly here. Verse 2, it says, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's Bible talk so for, for they got in a fight, right? That's, that's, all that, that's, that's what happened. These two sides, they lined up against one another and they argued. And you get the impression that neither side was going to give on this issue. Neither was willing to give ground here. And they fought with each other, but the argument didn't settle anything. In fact, the only way they could really think to resolve this matter was to take it to the very top. We're going to take this to the, the elders in Jerusalem and we're going to let them decide. That's what we see in verse 2. Paul and Barnabas, or verse 2 continues, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
So again, not just in Antioch, now in Jerusalem, we see this same problem all over again. On the one hand, there's people who are just celebrating the good news that new people are believing in Jesus. But once again, we also see that there were some people in that church who had these other expectations, these other rituals, these other traditions that they wanted to be forced upon these new believers. And honestly, you almost want to hold your breath at this moment as you realize what is at stake as the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem meet together to decide this matter. I mean, chapter 15 here, it it really is sort of a make it or break it moment for the church. Because the decision that they are going to make here is going to define what the church is going to be. It will shape the church for the next 2,000 years and more. This decision will literally plot the future of the church the world over. And their decision, when it finally came, it comes down to this, beginning in verse 7. Where it says, After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God, a uh, word of the gospel, and believe. And God, who knows the heart, he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And I love those words, especially verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Because when it comes right down to it, the thing that matters, the thing that makes the difference, the thing that makes us Christians is grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that was purchased on the cross on our behalf The cross where sin and death and everything that enslaves us was conquered. And now Christ stands ready to offer forgiveness and mercy and grace and life to all who would come to him. And he does so completely and perfectly and freely. And you don't need anything else. If you have grace, you don't need extra rules. You don't need works. You don't need circumcision. If you have grace, there's nowhere else you need to go, nothing else you need to do. There's no one else you need to trust in because Jesus is everything that we need. The grace of Jesus is sufficient. And salvation is by grace through faith alone. And you know, it's tragic when a church forgets that. It is tragic when a church expects or demands more than grace from people. Because the reality of the gospel is that trying to add anything else to it actually makes it less. To say that you need Jesus, but you also need something else to be saved, whether it's circumcision or rituals or habits or performance, is to turn salvation into a form of slavery. It's to turn our freedom in Christ into a form of legalism. It's to turn grace that is free into a commodity that we think we can earn or buy. 
And we need to be on guard against that. Because grace is not something we can earn or buy or work for or even be worthy of. Grace is only something that we can receive. I love the old saying that I heard, I think, first from Chuck Swindoll. He says it so well. He says, when a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, that's a wage. When a, when a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for their performance, that's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that's an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize and deserves no award, and yet receives such a gift anyways, that is a picture of God's grace. And that's one of the greatest truths that we find in the Word of God. So when the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, they get together to debate this issue that's come up in the church, they remember grace. They remember that if God has offered a person grace, who are they to deny them? That if God has accepted them, who are they to try to keep them apart? And if God has given them the Holy Spirit, who are they to say that they are not the people of God? Because every person who is truly saved is saved in the same way. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile or black or white or rich or poor. You are saved by grace. And as a church, that means we need to take a stand on grace. As a church, grace is what should define us. And I think as a church, we should be constantly just amazed by grace. It's something we should be celebrating. It's something that we should be living in awe of. It's something that we should gaze upon and just wonder of how amazing it is. And as a church, we should be embracing grace in our lives and in our church for, for all that we're worth. Because grace is amazing. And just listen to a few verses. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Romans 3.23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purposes and grace. Romans 5.20. The law was brought so that trespasses might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And you know, even in hearing those words, I could go on, there's so many verses, but I'm again in wonder of God's love for us and the greatness of the grace that we have received in him. Because what can compare to that? What can compare to the beauty of the cross and the gift of salvation and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, what we were powerless to do for ourselves Jesus did for us. Where we were helpless, he came to save us. Where we were lost, he came to find us. Where we were dead in our sins and transgressions, he came to offer us life. 
Where we fell short, he came to make up the difference. And I mean, just listen to a small part of what the Bible tells us about the grace found in the Lord Jesus. It tells us that in Christ we are beyond condemnation. We're delivered from the power of evil. We're a member of the kingdom of God. We are justified. We are made perfect. We have been adopted. We have access to God. We're part of the priesthood. We'll never be abandoned. We have an inheritance that is imperishable in glory waiting for us. We're a member of Christ's body. We're a branch in the vine. We're stone in the temple. We're a bride for the groom. We're a dwelling place for God's Holy Spirit. In Christ, we have been forgiven. In Christ, we have been accepted. In Christ, we have been welcomed into God's family. And in Christ, we have eternal life. And it's no wonder that Ephesians 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God doesn't hold back when it comes to grace. The grace of God is not a trickle. It's a flood. See, grace is not something that God measures out by the thimbleful in case it runs out. The grace of God is overwhelming. 1 Timothy 1.14 says God's grace is overflowing. 2 Corinthians 9.14 calls it surpassing grace. First, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.16 talks about the eternal encouragement and good hope of his grace. Ephesians 2.7 talks about the incomparable riches of the grace of God. Hear those words again. That the grace is eternal. It is surpassing. It is incomparable. It is overflowing. That is God's own description of his grace that he shows to us. So where does this sermon find you this morning? Well, I hope that it finds you having received and living in the grace of God. Because God loves you. And you should be living that out I actually really love the words of Philip Yancey um, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He says, grace means that there is nothing that we can do to make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics or renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Because grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God can possibly love. And that means that there's no one who's unlovable. That there's no sin, there's no crime, there's no life so lost that God would deny that person if he came to him looking for grace. There's no one that God doesn't want to come to him for mercy. No one who is so desperate that God would stop loving them. Because grace is always greater. And God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your every secret, every dark place in your heart, your every act, everything you've ever done or said, your every thought. He knows all of those things about you. And he still loves you. And he will still forgive you and he will still welcome you into his family. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior this morning, I want you to know that offer is still available to you right now. We're told that we need to believe in Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that he was without sin, that he died on the cross to pay for our sins, and that he died and rose again on the third day. 
And we just have to ask Jesus to forgive us our sins and take hold of our lives. And if we do that, we can be sure, absolutely sure that our sins are forgiven, that heaven is our home. And if you're here and you've already received, that, that's grace. If you're here and you've already received that gift of grace, you're already a believer, you're already living this out, my encouragement to you is to let others know about it. Let other people know that Jesus died for them. Let them know that he is still searching for those who don't yet know him. Tell anyone who will listen that God's grace is available. Tell the drug dealer God's grace is available. Tell the convict God's grace is for them. Tell the addict God's grace is for them. Tell the little children God's grace is for them. Tell the backslider God's grace is for you. Tell the unemployed, tell the broken, the bruised, the burdened, tell the tempted, the tried, and the tortured. Tell the lost, the lame, and the least. Tell anyone who will listen that God's grace is available for them. And I know this sermon this morning is a bit different than other ones I usually preach. Usually there's more of an outline and there's applications and points to, to take home. But today, as I went through this path, I just wanted us to remember and reflect on the grace of God. And just let the grace of God wash over us like a flood all over again. And I just want to encourage you once again this morning to embrace the grace of the Lord Jesus that is offered to you. And it's yours for the taking. And it's yours for the living. Let go of legalism and all those do's and don'ts that you try to measure your life with. Let go of trying harder, thinking you can somehow be perfect with a little bit more human effort. Let go of your guilt and you know, wallowing in your mistakes of your past and your sin. Let go of it and embrace grace. Because grace is what we need and it's all that we need. I'll end with this. Someone once said, when we get to heaven, there will be no contest to see who is the most deserving of God's grace because no one deserves it. There will only be one contest in heaven. When we look back and see what we were before, when we see the pit from which he rescued us, the only contest will be to see which of us will sing the loudest, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father God, um, may we be people of grace here in this church. May we experience your grace in our lives grace that is greater than all of our sins. May we be overwhelmed just by the beauty of it, the exceeding, abundant, sufficient grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, Lord, the greatest love of all, the greatest act of love of all eternity and all the universe was you going to the cross for our sins. And, Lord, that is the cost of of grace that you offer to us, and yet you offer it to us freely, what cost you everything. And I pray that we would take hold of that grace, that, Lord, we would live in that freedom, that we would celebrate that truth, and that, Lord, we wouldn't just experience grace, but, Lord, we would, in turn, then be gracious people, that we show that grace to others, that we would love others and accept them and encourage them and support them and protect them and know that every person we meet is a person that you died for.
And Lord, as a church, I pray that we would be able to tell people about that grace, the wonderful grace of Jesus. And as we live our lives for you, that Lord, we would be surrendered to that grace, that that grace would shape our lives, shape who we are, and that Lord, we would find our passion and our hope made all the more real because of the grace that you have shown to us. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.